Uh, we can turn back to the passage we read there, Isaiah chapter 53, and we can read the first three verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 1 might um, seem rather depressing, especially after the, the previous verses of this servant's song. The song, as we can see, is um, all about somebody's suffering. But at the same time, it's about that suffering person having a lot of glory. The song itself uh, divides into fairly obvious sections and Usually the paragraphs are marked for us, and verses 13 to 15 of um, Isaiah 52, exactly why they chose to divide it in the middle of this song. Uh, it's not entirely clear, but um, that's the introduction to the song. And then after that, there's four sections. We read the second the first of these sections, verses 1 to 3. Then there's another section in verses uh, 4 to 6. And then a third section in 7 to 9. And a fourth section in 10 to 12. But if we had read the introduction there in verses 11 to 15. I wonder what would be the next response we would expect to happen. What would somebody say after verses verse 15? Where it says there, so shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. I think we would expect something startling, something striking, something um, saying that everything had turned out fine. But that's not what's said, is it? Rather, we have this... Uh, Question, who has believed what he heard from us? 
the implication being not many. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This verse, of course, has been a, an encouragement to some people because they are perplexed when they don't see many converts. Perhaps the best known of these ones that's come down to us is Rutherford's sad lines. If one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. I wonder where the Mrs. Cousins got that from in his writings. It's always useful to check up. And this is what Rutherford himself said. I, exceed, I see exceeding small fruit of my ministry and will be glad to know of one soul to be my crown and rejoicing in the day of Christ. Rutherford apparently was a great preacher. People said that when he started to preach of Christ, that he was so engrossed and excited that it looked as if he would fly out of the pulpit. But even um, good men can minimize their effect. Because one of his contemporaries said about him, a man called John Livingston, said, while Rutherford was at Anworth, he was the instrument of much good among a poor, ignorant people, many of whom he brought to a knowledge and practice of religion. So the next time we're singing, if one soul from Anworth, just remember that he got plenty more than one. But anyway, the, whenever he wrote that particular letter, he was probably feeling a bit downcast, exiled from them. And he almost seems to be living verse 1 of Isaiah 53. And we can understand that. But then there's poor Isaiah. I mean, that's who must be speaking here initially, mustn't it? Isaiah, the evangelical prophet. Reading this particular passage, we could almost imagine him just sitting at the foot of the cross, as many people have said, and just writing down what he observes. And he's not alone, because he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? The word us, 
So it's, it's not just himself that's uh, having a, a kind of um, negative thought. There's actually a sort of discussion taking place here in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? We know that um, Micah was a prophet at the same time as Isaiah. And there are several passages which are very similar between the two prophets. One assumes that they knew each other. And maybe they had their discussions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And perhaps Isaiah had what many other prophets had, a school of prophets. And maybe as he instructed them, he said, who has believed what he has heard from us? So it was quite a, I suppose, disappointed. Disappointment has been said here. But it's not limited to Isaiah and his contemporaries. When we turn to Jesus, John, John chapter 12 and verse 36 and verse 38, it says this, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the... the bigger fulfillment of Isaiah's lament is not found in Isaiah himself, is it? It's actually found in Jesus. He hid him, it says there, that they refused to believe in him despite all the signs he had given to them and that this fulfilled Isaiah's question here, Lord, who has believed our report. But it doesn't stop there. Because Paul writing in Romans chapter 10 and, and verse 14 to 17, he's got a series of questions, which is quite interesting because here in Isaiah 51, there's two questions. And maybe it's a very helpful way for us to um, proceed through a, an assessment of a situation just by asking appropriate questions. Anyway, in Romans, Paul writes these questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Question one. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Question two. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Question three. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Question four. 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then he says, despite all these ones being sent, he goes on to describe the listeners and says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So this verse here in Isaiah 51, Isaiah 53, sorry, verse 1, it's not just Isaiah that uses it. Even Jesus understands it. Isn't that extraordinary? Imagine the Savior and his disciples saying to one another, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then there's Paul and his associates as they travel around the world. And of course they had a, an incredible impression on the world, hadn't they? So even the world had to say about them, those who have turned the world upside down have come here. And no doubt there was a vast enlargement of the kingdom during the days of the apostles. But here's Paul writing his, his book about what he believes. And in the middle of it he says, who has believed our report? The impression being given that, that more rejected it than accepted it. We can think of him going to Athens, the cultural capital of the Roman Empire, and giving his very accurate and logical and from our point of view, persuasive uh, address at the Areopagus. What was the response? A handful. A handful expressed their interest. There's three groups, Isaiah, Jesus, his disciples, Paul and his colleagues. And of course, we can add a fourth group, can't we? And then the fourth group is everybody else who's ever done it. Because it doesn't just seem to have extraordinary power. And the one thing we can say about Isaiah and the one thing we can say about the Apostle John as he records the reaction of Jesus and his disciples and we can say about Paul as he writes his letter to the church in Rome the one thing we can say about them is realism. 
tell it as it is, not as we would like it to be. I don't know if this question bothers us. could add a couple of words to it, couldn't we? Who in Inverness has believed what he has heard from us? But it does look, doesn't it, as, as if these, this question and the question that follows it are essential preparations for understanding what comes next. Why didn't they believe? Well, the answer is, as we can see from verses 2 and 3, the answer is what Jesus looked like. That's why they didn't believe. He didn't fit with what they thought was worth noticing. So that's the first question. I just want us to think of first question and the second question well then what happens when the arm of the Lord is revealed and then considering the consider the servant of the Lord since we are told to behold him that's how the song starts behold him not just behold him when the going is good but behold him when the going is tough. Not just tough for us, but tough for him. Because however tough it may be for us, it was much tougher for him, as we can see from verses 2 and 3. So we thought about the first question. Who has believed our report? Well, we might say, well, maybe we're not very competent at explaining it. Maybe Isaiah and his companions, well, they weren't the greatest to listen to. Who knows? Paul well, we're told of him he, himself, he says he was a speech contemptible. So maybe that was part of the problem. And of course, every person, preacher or otherwise, who has done it ever since, talked about Jesus. Well, as Paul himself says, not many mighty not many noble. 
So the first question we could say, well, it's talking about the presenters. But when we come to the second question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I suppose it's good to answer, if one, if one question presents a dilemma, to ask another question, to approach the situation from a different angle. And that's what's happening here, a different angle. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, that's his power, isn't it? His almighty power. The Lord can speak the universe into existence. The Lord upholds it all by the word of his power. Even in the previous chapter, in Isaiah chapter 52, in verse 10, it says this just before the start, the introduction to this servant song. In Isaiah 52, verse 10, talking about the deliverance from Babylon and the exile. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. People just had to look around and as they saw the, the Jews going back to Jerusalem, they had living proof of the power of God. And yet, within a space of a few verses, the prophet here is saying, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, how many people could the Lord convert? When he rises in his power, who can resist him? So, question number two removes any deficiency that there may have been in the objects of question number one. The power of the Lord has not been revealed the way it could have been. And I suppose... That is what the various different groups we mentioned a minute ago would say. Isaiah and his friends. And even when the Savior was here and his disciples. And even Paul and his colleagues. And even the vast train that have followed them. None of them can actually say, can they? We saw the fullness of divine power. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this question, like the first question, 
is realistic. Describe life the way it is. And both these questions lead into verse 3. Sorry, verse 2 and 3. And they lead into an obvious question. What happens when the arm of the Lord is revealed? And the answer to that question, of course, is that people change their minds about Jesus. It's not that the message changes. It's not that Isaiah has to go somewhere else and get another message and start again. But when the arm of the Lord reveals its power, it doesn't change the facts. The picture described in verses 2 and 3 remains the same. But those that look at it, they have a different understanding, a different response. So I'd just like us to think briefly about what a changed mind about Jesus looks like. There in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I think verse 2 describes life in Nazareth. It is talking about his earthly experience. What life was like for him in Nazareth. Because that is where he was a young plant, isn't it? He shall grow up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So there he is in Nazareth. And I think it's the change and the understanding is seen in the little words before him. For he grew up not in the presence of Joseph and Mary, although he did literally, of course, or in the presence of all the inhabitants of the, of the town. But they actually understand that this particular servant, he is growing up before him, before God. And of course we get an insight into that, don't we, in his visit to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And when he gets, or at least from the perception of Mary and Joseph, he gets lost. But of course he wasn't lost. But from there, Position. He was lost, and they went to look for him, and they found him eventually in the temple, 
And of course, perhaps the implication is they should have gone and looked there first. But anyway, the, he went, they went to find him, and there he is, talking with the elders, asking and answering questions and so on. And Mary has her little um, criticism of him. And he says to her, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Where did he live? He lived before him. In the presence of God. He says something quite intriguing in John chapter 8 verse 29. His own description of his life. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Isn't that a beautiful description of a wonderful life? Thirty years in Nazareth. What was it like? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It's not surprising that the day of his baptism, when Jesus went there from Nazareth, that the heavenly Father tore heaven open and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He lived before God. And you know, there was nothing in Nazareth to help him to do that. It was like dry ground. What was it going to give him? Even the synagogue in Nazareth, when they heard him give a sermon, they actually wanted to throw him off the hill. And yet, that's where he was. And as people looked on him, as he lived there in Nazareth, of course we find this very hard to understand because we regard him as the most beautiful man that ever lived. But when they looked at him, he had no form or majesty that we should give him a second look. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Nobody went rushing out of Nazareth to tell the surrounding villages that Jesus lived in their midst. Cana was only six miles from Nazareth. And that's where Nathaniel lived. Nathaniel, the man in whom there was no guile, and when Philip came to him and said, we have found the Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the prophets did write. As in Isaiah 53, honest Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth. 
Nathaniel, whatever contacts he had with Nazareth, it's obvious that none of the inhabitants had said to him, there's somebody in Nazareth you must see. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. They thought he was weak and unimpressive. Of course, they're looking for the wrong things, aren't they? What do we see in Nazareth? Or what should we see in Nazareth? In this unusual life, day after day, being despised and rejected. Well, what's he doing there? He's living a perfect life. A life in which there's no flaws. And when the arm of the Lord is revealed, we see that. And we see that he's not just living this perfect life for his own benefit or even only for the pleasure of his father. Which he did do, of course. It wasn't only for that that he did it. But there in Nazareth, he lived a perfect life amidst, amidst all the persistent refusal to pay any attention to him. He lived a perfect life for you and me. I mean, Nazareth is a wonderful place. Not because of the rest of the village, but because of Jesus. There, day after day after day, whatever it was he was doing, he did it perfectly. He did it for us. And the arm of the Lord shows that to us. He did it before God. A, a wonderful life. But then in verse 3, this seems to be as he leaves Nazareth, perhaps. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word there, grief, means the pressure of illnesses. It's a word picture to describe the intensity of his sorrow. As I was thinking about this, I just asked myself, what would Jesus think if he walked down High Street? Just think about it. 
What would Jesus think if he walked down High Street? As he saw people not giving the slightest attention to God, how would Jesus react? If he got home and someone said to him, well, what was the town like today? Walk down High Street. Or maybe change it to walking down my street. How would Jesus react to your street? I suspect he's a man of sorrows. He would feel every step, everything he saw, everything he heard would affect his heart. What did it feel for Jesus to be called a glutton and a drunkard? A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. What did it feel for, what did Jesus feel when they said that he did his miracles by the powers of darkness? What did he feel when the 5,000 told him he was not worth following? What did he feel when the citizens of Gadara told him to leave immediately? What did he feel when he saw the abusers taking place in the temple? When we think about these things, are we surprised he's the man of sorrows? We're not to judge him by how we're affected. But when the arm of the Lord is revealed, the prophet seems to be saying, isn't he, that that's what people will see. What would make him sad? The sins he saw? The troubles he observed? That people faced? The deaths that were occurring? The unbelief that was all around him? fact that the religious people are putting traditions before his father's word, the rejections that he faced or experienced, the hypocrisy that he saw, the machinations of the religious authorities. Not surprising he's a man of sorrows, is it?
What was it like for him to walk down the street and see people hiding their faces from him? We just mentioned some of them. But that was his life. And when the arm of the Lord is revealed, his sadnesses take on a different perspective. Because he was sad where we should have been sad. And that just leads us briefly to consider the servant. Behold him. Just three things. Behold the reality of his humiliation. Here he is, the God of heaven. The eternal son. who had an eternity of joy and delight in the Trinity. And even after creation began, there he is in heaven and the angelic host, hanging on every one of his words. And then he comes down here. And he's not, as it were, pushed out of the door of heaven. He comes down voluntarily. And he comes down. And we have to think about the word down. He came down here and experienced this Despite the fact he was serving God all the time, in his humiliation he never put a foot wrong. He never had a wrong thought. But there he is, humbling himself. And even after he had come to begin his public ministry, it just seems to be going down and down. And it was. Because he was choosing to do that. In the next section of this song, we'll see him going down further. But at the moment, we're just asked to think about his life. A beautiful life. A perfect life. A humble life. Living in the environment that was totally different from what he deserved. So we are to think about the astonishing reality of his humiliation. Let this mind be in you, said the Apostle Paul which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, 
and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. It's a wonderful passage to have a theological debate about. But that's not why it was given. It's given as an example. And then there's his comprehensive obedience. Everything that was required of him, he did it. And he did it wholeheartedly. His life, we could say, was marked by holy desires and holy devotion and holy duties. There he is. People don't think much of him. Not even his brothers. I mean, they lived with him for decades. And they didn't say to their neighbors, our elder brothers, our example. But that didn't stop his obedience, did it? He had come to serve. But his service didn't just involve his will. And it didn't just involve his grasp of things. His service involved his emotions, his affections. And therefore he wept. We could almost call it, according to this verse, a weeping obedience. And we're to look at it. It's almost as if God the Father is saying, Behold his tears. My servant will act wisely. And therefore he'll be the man of sorrow. There's also the attractiveness of his sorrow. I mean, what kind of savior do we need? Do we need a savior who will laugh his way through his time on earth? Or do we need a savior who will be indifferent to what he sees in his time on earth? I think the saviour we need is a saviour who was distressed by the presence and effects of sin. And when the arm of the Lord is revealed, we'll take him as our saviour. Won't we? He is the saviour that we need. Shall we pray?